Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Woman in Compliance podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary, and today I'm very pleased to welcome Joelle Thorne-Peters to the podcast. Thank you for joining us, Joelle. Please tell us about yourself. Yes. Thank you both, Lisa and Mary, for having me. It's truly a pleasure. and I'm excited. It's my mm-hmm. first podcast, so Ooh, yes. hope I do well. <laughs> you do great. So I will just give you like a little brief look back at my career and just to highlight where I got, where I started and to where I am right now. So I started at Fidelity Investments. I was there for about six and a half years. And I started my career in audit there. It wasn't necessarily internal audit, but it was a function of audit. But even back then, I knew that I wanted to be in compliance. So it was a goal of mine to be at Fidelity and work in their compliance department. Fast forward about six years, I eventually did get there. And I was in their asset management department. I was happy I crossed it off as far as a goal <laughs> accomplished, but it just wasn't the role for me. Unfortunately, but fortunately for me, I was laid off and I decided, you know what, I'm just going to break apart from Fidelity, even though I was encouraged to apply for other positions. I wanted to take my time and reevaluate to see where I wanted to go. And so I took a much needed break and then I decided I wanted to go into internal audit. Internal audit decided that was not for me either. And then about a year and a half after internal audit, I was approached by Fresenius mm. and that's where you and I met. And I was approached by their compliance department to work in healthcare compliance in the compliance audit field. And that's where I spent four years of my time there. But I always, it's a really good thing to have on your resume to work in healthcare compliance mm-hmm. because the standard at which you operate is so high that you learn so much. It's stressful because mm-hmm. things are always changing, but mm-hmm. it is a really nice baseline. Mm-hmm. If you decide to move on from a compliance audit, you're already at this high level. So it depends on if you have your next position has a compliance department or if it's a new worst comp- department, you have so much more to contribute. Mm-hmm. Depth is there. So I spent four, like I said, I spent four years there and then eventually got to the point where I'm like, all right, I need my next role. Mm-hmm. That's where I am now. I work at a tech company. Technically, I am an internal audit back where I didn't want to be. But I work <laughs> in the compliance in their compliance audit area. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. And I know you laughed when you talked about I didn't want to be there, but I think so much of about what helps us define what we do really want and enables us to go after it is when we fully and wholly understand what we don't want. That's mm-hmm. really important. So I love that you've been able to do that and you've been able to find a great balance. And so this episode is really leveraging off your wheelhouse area. It's a special compliance audit episode because a lot of us who are in compliance that especially they have the legal background, we're not super strong on the audit side of things. So I thought, wouldn't it be great to get someone who actually for their job does this and understands it from the subject matter expert perspective. So I'd love to start off with some level setting. What is compliance audit and where should the people with that job set? Yeah. I'll start off by giving a little bit of a comparison between compliance audit and internal audit, right? Mm -hmm. So they're very different. Um, Mm -hmm. So when I think of internal audit, I think of operational audits. I think of SOCs, controls testing. I think of financial audits, things Mm -hmm. like that. While there can be overlap 
with compliance and audit. Compliance audit is really about that high level assessment of our adherence to any kind of external regulations or laws, if there are any clauses, things that we have to be on the lookout for. It's very high level on the external on the external aspect. Internally, it's evaluating that framework. It's really getting a feeling for and an understanding for what is going to put your company at risk and then also the risk tolerance for it. Just to provide a quick example, just to show you the difference a little bit better. So I always think of travel and expense, right? Spend is usually really small in a company budget, so the risk is lower. But it's an audit that... And so when you think of internal audit, you think of, all right, they're going to look at your approvals, they're going to make sure your receipts are uploaded, they're going to make sure that your transactions are below a certain threshold. Mm -hmm. That's really what they're looking at. When you're looking from a a compliance lens, though, a compliance audit lens, you're really looking at behaviors. You're looking at people, and this may include people on a higher level, right? How are they spending company money? Is it really opening us up to potential inducement or bribery risks? Are we giving gifts to people that we shouldn't be giving gifts to? Things like that, really just trying to understand the behavior of people and also just general fraud, right? Mm -hmm. Of policies around cash allowances and some companies have a minimum cash allowance for their expenses where employees can just use cash and they get reimbursed for it. Or they have a tolerance level as far as no receipts. And so now you have a tolerance level of no receipts for $20 and you have a cash a cash allowance of $10. You could potentially have fraud there, right? Mm-hmm. An employee who's just submitting expenses yeah. for cash, that's it. So you really have to look, again, at the behaviors of people. And so as far as your second part of the question as to where compliance audit should sit, well, audit typically direct directly reports into the audit committee. If there is an audit committee, there's a board of directors. Whereas compliance, you'll typically report into the chief compliance officer. And so the couple of downsides that I do see to that are your ability to move on and move up in the company. You generally don't have a lot of wiggle room in the compliance area because the mm-hmm. positions themselves are limited. And then also just what's the word I'm looking for? A separation and independence. If you're auditing a compliance framework, you don't want to report into compliance. So in my little opinion, I think that compliance should sit with internal audit, but with a dotted line into the CCO. That way it gives you the independence from compliance, but then also allows more room for the career growth and that kind of like the vertical movement upwards. Useful. Thank you very much. And now, before I ask the next question, I do want to be clear that there is no substitute for objective reviews and getting experts in to evaluate and benchmark your program when that is called for. That said, we should also be champions for our own self-improvement and proactively identifying and closing gaps internally. For compliance staff that want to do a bit of monitoring and controls testing themselves, how would you advise them to identify an area and what step? what's the step-by-step process to follow to do a self Yep. So at first, I would advise anyone just to look at the framework in general. What are your policies that kind of govern the company or your lines of business? If you have a particular line of business that you're over, is there already established program in place? Are there internal controls that touch on compliance that are around your area of business? And how are they operating? Have you tested Mm -hmm. them? When I try to help people figure out what they should test. I do ask what are your concerns are and what the process checks and balances are if there 
are any to prevent the said risk. If it's an established process, then I say look at the policies that you have, look at the procedures that you have, and build an audit off of that. If there isn't any kind of process or checks and balances, I just do an overall assessment to get a baseline of where you are. Are there any kind of laws and regulations that you do need to factor in also? And then what's the behavior, like I said before, and then what's the risk? So once you have identified that true risk and the actual why behind it, you can build an audit around that. It's what I always like to call the Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole. It's just drilling down into that and just getting to the point of where you hit that bottom and you feel satisfied enough of, okay, no, this is where I need to, what I need to do and what I need to focus on. Great. Thank you. What are the areas of opportunity that you've noticed where compliance can better work with internal audit and other review functions to make life better and easier for everyone? Yeah. So I think having a good real working relationship is a start. Sometimes there's this invisible battle between IA, compliance, and legal. We really want to be a good working partner within all these functions. I always say that, especially in compliance audit, you want to have some exposure into what internal audit is doing. So whether that's sitting in on their, their, their closing meetings, looking at their final reports, whatever it is, you want to have conversation. So you're in these meetings, you're asking these questions, you're probing them a little bit to see what are the risks are for compliance from a compliance perspective. Mm -hmm. And in that way, you're also putting it in their mind of, okay, I got to look out for this. Mm -hmm. Next time I see something, I can notify compliance audit. Mm -hmm. It can decide if this is enough of a risk to the company that they need to do an audit on. I think Compliance also should just position themselves into a trusted advisor status and kind of work to have a seat at that table and really put ourselves as a function that is a resource that's here to help and provide guidance when needed and not mm -hmm. just a function to tell you no. And it really in turn will allow compliance to get a true read on the business and also to add value to the company as a whole. Great. And from a benchmarking perspective, are there perennial issues that compliance audit professionals are aware of that most companies get wrong and need remediating on an almost continuous scale? Or do things more trend and change in terms of issues you spot over time? I think it's a little bit of both. You're going to have just typical audits that are going to require your attention year over year just to spot check if you're not doing full-blown. The example I gave earlier about T&E, you have new people come in and out. They may not know the rules. So those are typically audits that happen year over year or every mm -hmm. two years or however space it. But those are something that those are staples in a typical audit plan. But then you also have just new processes, new lines of business, things that are popping up that you need to audit, but it may not require you to continuously and consistently come back mm. and audit it again. So it's a little bit of both, just having that flexibility to know when something supposed to be a one and done kind of thing. And then mm -hmm. something that needs to be constant monitoring. And you mentioned travel and expense is one of the perennial issues. When it comes to making a decision about a new business, perhaps the company acquires a smaller company. And so there's new people, new lines of business that didn't previously exist. How long after you've how long after you've acquired, say, a new business, would you decide to start doing an audit on the new organization? So I would typically give them some time. We're mm -hmm. going to go through an adjustment period. 
what I would do, and this is just me, it may not be <laughs> student practice, but I would, before it even happens, I would even just look into some of these processes that the company, new company has, what are they mm-hmm. doing? Understanding their risk tolerance as well, because it, it mm-hmm. may be different than ours. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then once I established that, just keep it in the back of my mind until it's official where we're now operating as one. And then take a deep dive. I'd say anywhere from three to six months, maybe. And maybe mm-hmm. that may be a little bit long because you want time for them to iron out things from merging or whatever. So it, stuff may not make sense. Stuff may be different, may not be operating the way it's supposed to be operating in that time period. So you want to allow for a little bit of breathing room for that, but you don't mm-hmm. want to wait too long before you start poking in and seeing what things are. And so that you can get on the same baseline of on each company. Okay. That makes sense because the post-acquisition integration process can be several months long. So if they're focusing on even just implementing the compliance program, you can understand that not everything's going to be in place yet. So I think that's pretty reasonable. Is there an emerging risk that you think will be on everyone's radar to audit in the coming year or two? I don't know if I'm late to the worry party or (laughs) time or what it is, but I third party management, the it just makes me so anxious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It really makes me so anxious because it's an area that may not be monitored well, but also carries a lot of big risk implications. Yes. Uh, and so I I get really nervous with that. I think of there are a few different areas we can go with it. Obviously, just your due diligence aspect of it. Are you making sure it's not a conflict of interest? And how are we documenting that it's not? What are your risk levels as far as, is this a high risk vendor, low risk, moderate risk, whatever. And then also, are we doing business with a vendor where we once had them as mm-hmm. a high risk? Working yourself back from that. And then you also just have the aspect of the management product contracts, making sure we have all of our contracts, our vendors, knowing who our vendors are, making sure we're on top of our the renewal dates and fair market value analysis when it comes to contract terms and things mm-hmm. like that. And then even further, I, in my brain, I never thought of this, but no reason why, but even if we have third-party contract employees, are we holding them to the same standard that we do our own employees? Because at the end of the day, they still represent our company. Mm-hmm. So are we making sure they have the proper certifications, the trainings, if there mm-hmm. is an investigation or an allegation? Are we investigating against mm-hmm. them? Are we following up on the discipline? So there are so many different areas just within that third party yeah. risk management that it, it could just expand. And that's just one area that I know talks have been getting ramped up and stuff. Mm-hmm. I feel that in the next couple of years, it's going to be a lot bigger. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think there's several things out of what you've just mentioned. And I don't think it's just third-party employees, I think it's very easy to overlook, especially in highly regulated industries. If you have people that need certifications in order to do their job and you leave it up to the employee to make sure that they are remaining licensed in their field, there is a big risk there. If the organization says you need to maintain your nursing license or whatever it is, same thing with clinics, for example, making sure that all of the operating licenses and permits are up to date and haven't expired yet is important. And I don't think you are too late to the worry party. And I'd be really interested to put this out to our audience. My understanding, I happen to have done a like a benchmarking exercise at a conference that was specifically for life sciences companies. And I learned that 
pretty much the vast majority of companies in my in that sample size, and there were tens of companies in the room. Just about everybody in this healthcare space is auditing third parties. They're making use of their audit rights, and they're auditing them on a fairly regular basis as just good practice in their compliance program. What I'd be really interested to know is whether that extends beyond this highly regulated space and whether companies are conducting regularized audits, even when when there is no suspicion of misconduct on the part of the third party. I have a feeling probably not, but I don't have any data on that currently. And if that's the case, then you're absolutely not too late to the worry party. We should all be getting a bit nervous about that and thinking about okay, maybe it's not the right thing to exercise our audit rights on every single third party we have, but we should make some effort perhaps in our audit plan to do a targeted and proportionate approach because we have these rights, these people have agreed to them. And so why are we doing nothing about it unless potentially we're in healthcare? I think that would be important to know. And if I have completely maligned everybody not in healthcare, please contact me ASAP and call me out on that because it is important that we we give praise um, to the entire field if that's what everybody is doing. But if not, I think that is a really great area of opportunity for us to think about, okay, since around about, it felt audit rights clauses with that started coming into a play. It felt for me and I was overseas at the time. So if Team America's, oh my God, Mary, it was so much earlier. But when I was overseas, I started seeing it around 2011, 2012. And so we've got plenty of time to sort of, you know, get used to these things, but now are we actually using them as tools or are we only using them as a reactive tool instead when we think there might need to be an investigation or should we be doing proactive? Yeah. And I think too, even just in the healthcare space, like I said at the beginning, you operate at such a higher level because the risks are so much bigger. Yeah. And so you really have to understand implications and really just pick apart at some of these things. So I think that's just a natural way in the healthcare community, especially in the compliance realm of it. It's trying to get ahead of these things. And I would like to think that all of all these companies out here are stellar and they're looking out and they have a good grasp on it. But my feeling is that we don't have a single spot where we know where all of our vendors come from. No, we can't say, all right, this is our point of contact. And I know they have every single contract Mm -hmm. that we have for a third party here. I think that it would, it would serve a lot of companies just to be able to do like a, just a simple baseline of where we sit and then audit up from there. But I guess we'll see. Yeah. And you know, I think cleaning up the master vendor data list has to be the most unattractive spring cleaning job ever, but you do get a lot of value from it. If you're sitting on your hands with not much to do, take a look at your vendor master data list. It helps. <laughs> Joelle, when hiring for compliance audit staff, what are the attributes and experience we should be looking for? And presumably people who are fairly good with numbers can often be a good start if you're looking at the financial transactions. Yeah, I would say particularly people that are good with numbers. My my accounting teacher would always say, accounting is not math. Ah, <laughs> really? You got debits and credits. That's what you're looking for. So I would say you really have to be good at math. There are other things, mm-hmm. yes, but like as far as the financial impact, mm-hmm. more or less. <laughs> but I think as far as I'll talk attributes first, mm-hmm. I think someone who is going to constantly ask why. Mm-hmm. I know in my own experience, I've aggravated some of my coworkers, but 
I am firm believe if you can keep asking why, you mm-hmm. haven't fully found your answer. So someone who is just naturally inquisitive and curious mm-hmm. and creative, and mm-hmm. that's not something you necessarily think of in the field of compliance mm-hmm. and audit, but you really are sometimes pulling these audits out of nowhere. And so you mm-hmm. really have to think outside the box and try to figure out, all right, how can I audit this? What are my risks? And are we exposing ourselves at any point in time? And then also having a risk-averse approach to just be able to see the forethought. And this is a potential risk. I see this area getting a little bit out of hand. So let's try to get it while we can before it gets to be a bigger issue. And then lastly, is just having a thick skin. Uh, (laughs) You just naturally in this position, you sit higher in the organization. So that just puts you at the table with higher ups and C-suite. So you really have to be able to respectfully stand your ground if need be. And then also to be able to navigate those situations seamlessly. Mm -hmm. And as far as experience goes, like actual like work experience, internal audit background is just, I think it's mandatory. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's really mandatory. And I think it, it helps to differentiate between what would be more of an internal audit versus what would be a compliance audit. And then also just someone who has a different audit background across different fields. You want that different mm-hmm. perspective. You want to be able to have someone that can just really think, again, that word creatively, about these things and offer different approaches. That's helpful. Thank you. I saw a recent article and it had the lovely title, You Don't Have to Be a Clown to Audit the Circus. And my understanding is that refers to the criticism that auditors often receive, which is that if you're not a subject matter expert in a certain area, how can you reasonably be expected to evaluate a subject matter expert's competence? What's your stance on this criticism? This is where I get a little sassy. Oh, Uh, great. I love it. (laughs) Bring it. I always say I don't need to be a SME or subject matter expert to see if you're doing something incorrect Mm -hmm. or if, you know, you're putting the company at a risk. Very plain and simple. It doesn't take Mm -hmm. someone to know a process to be able to determine that. I would say for those who are newer to audit, which I think this is what it's applying to, because I've been, I've experienced it where you don't have people who are necessarily understanding your processes and they don't know that Mm. they have to do research, how it could come off as we don't have the competence for it. If you're newer, really just looking at all those policies and procedures, just skimming them, reading them again, understanding the process before you get into any kind of walkthrough. So you Mm. can talk about it intelligently with these stakeholders um, and ask the appropriate question. And also too, if again, because healthcare laws are changing, regulations are changing, everything, do your research on those first as well. Applies. Google is your friend. But you're really trying to position yourself in a way where you are shown as you're being competent, you are intelligent, and you can speak to these processes that these subject matter experts perform. I've seen this over and over again as well on the other side of you have your subject matter experts and they're usually really good at that one thing that they're doing. And they've been doing that for years upon years and you can't tell them one way or another. They may have procedures documented somewhere. They may have whatever, but this is how they do their process. So then you start going through walkthroughs and you notice like little inconsistencies and stuff like that. And you also see that there's really no, there's no backup to it. You have a subject matter expert who is then a single point of failure. And so when you're creating audits, again, trying to go into this 
you know, competent headspace. You really want to make sure just holistically everything is sound. So Mm -hmm. while you may not be able to identify a risk because either there's no policy or there's no procedure, or maybe they just do things a certain way, there really should be something governing it. They'll still look down on you, but they'll still get dinged for it. (laughs) Yeah. So they're lacking the transparency and accountability when there's nothing there. And I think that's such a great point that I call this um, compliance complacency when this happens, when we do it. And it's that same thing where we think that there is a compliance risk when somebody says, oh, that's the way we've always done it. The same should apply to us in compliance. We should take our own medicine and realize that if we are doing the exact same thing that we've been doing for years and not being willing to check on whether there is a better way or a more transparent way to be doing it, we're just as bad as the business folks who use the same excuse. I would remind us all of compliance officer complacency and it often creeps in to organizations that have say come out of a CIA many years ago. And off the back of that, they're like, oh, we have a best in class compliance program. But I don't realize that a decade passes, the compliance field has evolved. They no longer have a best in class program, but they're sitting there smugly telling everybody that they do. This is a real risk for us. And I'm sorry that you're having to encounter this on a fairly frequent basis in your profession, that there are people who are doing things the way that they've always done them and not really remaining open to whether there could be a better way or improvement. All right. So this brings us to the last question, which is there any advice you'd like to give compliance professionals from where you sit? Don't give up, really. It's a frustrating job right? Because just naturally, we aren't the most liked individuals Mm -hmm. unless we truly have that equal partnership where we're seen as business partners. If you find yourself bumping into that kind of mind frame, I guess, really trying to change that perception. I came from a company where I did my internal audit stint where it was our internal audit department was not liked at first. Mm -hmm. You would have people that would just hide You would call them, they wouldn't answer their phone. And so really trying to change that perception. Eventually we did. We were able Mm. to say, listen, we are both on the same team. Mm. I want to help evaluate your processes. So if there are any kind of gaps that you have, we can fix them. So Mm. if something does happen, if we have an external audit or if in the case of healthcare, if mess comes in or whatever it is, that we've already identified these and we're working Mm -hmm. on that. So that's one One piece of advice is just try to change that perception and really make that a good working relationship with your stakeholders. And also I say too, this is more personal for me. I've always struggled with, do I want to go to law school? Do I not want to go to law school? And compliance is one of those fields where especially compliance audit, one of those fields where you don't have to have a law degree in order to experience compliance. So if people are on the fence about it, I'd say start in compliance audit. That way you'll work with compliance professionals, you'll work with lawyers, you'll work with everybody. Mm-hmm. Get to see if it's something that you really want to do before that time commitment, before all that money. And then reevaluate if it's something you want to do. Like I said, I've always wanted to go to law school. Would I be doing anything different? Probably not. <laughs> do I want to still go to law school? Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's put it from, no, I want to go to law school to get a job to do this. As of now, it's not. I want to go to law school because it's something just for me, Mm. not necessarily for anybody else. So I think it can kind of help you figure out 
get if you're on the fence, if that's mm-hmm. something you do want to do. Good yeah, advice. My little, my little Love it. That was great. No, it was really good. And to close out today's episode, I wanted to give some food for thought in relation to culture of integrity right now. We're seeing Navex Global, uh, their studies are showing that workplace incivility is up across the board. We're seeing increased complaints on harassment, discrimination, retaliation, and all of those categories substantiated confirmation of those issues is up as well. Ethosphere study is showing that substantiated retaliation has gone up from 79% to 82%. Society is just disastrous right now. First thing, be the change you want to see. Keep acting graciously as compliance officers. Remember, now might be a really great time to do refresher training to managers on how to appropriately receive reports, reminders of what retaliation is, and some of those trickier ones, for example, exclusion, quality of work projects going down some of those less obvious ones and yeah remember that this is really impacting us in terms of our culture of integrity joelle you woke up this morning zero podcasts under your belt now one podcast down great job thank you for joining us really appreciate it thank you for having me again mary appreciate it Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review. 